Perhaps you've seen the YouTube commercial this year done by the British grocery chain Sainsbury. It's about the fraternization that occurred in no man's land on Christmas Day, 1914. Hashtag Christmas Truce. It relives the impromptu ceasefire that occurred during World War I on the Western Front when British and German troops sang Christmas carols on Christmas Eve. Well, the next day, this inspired both armies to lay down their weapons and exit their foxholes to celebrate Christmas together. They swapped handshakes, they swapped chocolates with one another, and for a brief reprieve, they celebrated the holiday that they had in common. But... In the annals of warfare, this was an exception rather than a rule. For over the centuries, some of the harshest battles have been fought at Christmas time. One of the most acclaimed victories of the American Revolution occurred when Washington's Continental Army crossed the Delaware River on Christmas Day to surprise the German mercenaries at the Battle of Trenton. When Tecumseh Sherman and the Union troops ended their march to the sea, With the capture of Savannah, Sherman telegrammed Washington presenting the southern port port as a Christmas gift to President Lincoln. In World War II, the German offensive that led to the Battle of the Bulge was intended by the German high command to be a Christmas victory for Adolf Hitler. And then in 1972, in a failed attempt to hasten The end of the Vietnam War, Nixon ordered the infamous Christmas bombing campaign of Hanoi. My point is, is that despite the message of hope portrayed in the Christmas truce video, more often than not, Christmas and war have been regular companions. In fact, that first Christmas was quickly followed by King Herod's brutal and barbaric attacks on the babies of Bethlehem. The slaughter of the innocents was the result of a jealous reaction to the worship of the wise men at the feet of King Jesus. You know, today when we think of Christmas, we envision cozy images of friends singing Christmas carols and family members under the Christmas tree exchanging gifts. But this is not the picture painted in the earliest Christmas scenes. You know, for several weeks now, we've been searching the prophecy of Isaiah for portraits of Jesus. In Isaiah, we're stunned with a different kind of Christmas image. The prophet Isaiah, writing around 700 B.C., connects Christmas to a vicious army, a brutal siege, a broken people, a bloody conflict, and ultimately a surprise victory. Once again, though, war and Christmas go hand in hand. This morning, I want to recount to you one of the most important stories in all the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is full of inspiring narratives. There's Moses at the Red Sea, and Joshua's victory over Jericho, and David's triumph over Goliath, and Jonah in the well, and Daniel in the lion's den. We could go on. But there's one story that's equally dramatic. And yet, for some reason, enjoys far less notoriety. And that is Hezekiah and the angel. Have you ever heard of that story? It's so important to God that he chooses to record it three times in the scriptures. 
2 Kings chapter 19, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and Isaiah chapter 37. The event is also referred to in several of the prophets and even the Psalms. In fact, the story's background is found in the text that I've chosen for us to study this morning, Isaiah chapter 7 through 9. Now here's the story in a nutshell. The Assyrian army was on a rampage. After successful sieges against the Syrian capital of Damascus and the Israeli capital of Samaria, in 701 BC, the Assyrian king Sennacherib set his sights on Judah's capital of Jerusalem. In fact, he put the city under siege. At least 185,000 troops surrounded the walls around Jerusalem. They were camped outside in the valley below, poised to strike. Just for comparison's sake, 200,000 troops would be about the population of the city of Columbus, Georgia. Shows you the enormity of the army. The Assyrian king hoped that the mere threat of such a vast army would intimidate the Jews into surrender. His hope was to conquer Jerusalem without firing a shot. That's not what happened. Isaiah the prophet, Hezekiah the king, they dropped to their knees. And they prayed for a miracle. People of Jerusalem, they went to bed that night on the brink of annihilation. But the next morning, they awoke to a pleasant surprise. For that night, an angel of the Lord had fought for Judah. A single battle-hardened angel, a one-angel wrecking crew, slaughtered 185,000 seasoned Assyrian troops. 2 Kings 19 verse 35 provides us a play-by-play. It says, on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. And I love that line. (laughs) There were the corpses, all dead. Talk about stating the obvious. Most corpses I've seen are dead. But remember, the writer, he's in a state of shock. I mean, he thinks his eyes have betrayed him. For weeks, he's been looking over the walls at ferocious troops. But this time, he can't believe what he sees. The valley is littered with dead Assyrian soldiers. Second Kings finishes. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away. Returned home. He tucked tail and ran back home and remained at Nineveh. It was a devastating, embarrassing defeat that sent the proud king reeling. It literally changed history and brought down the Assyrian Empire. George Byron immortalized the angel's victory in a poem. It goes like this. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears were like stars on the sea when the blue waves rolled nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, That host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn has blown, that host on tomorrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill and their hearts once heaved forever grew still. And there lay the soldiers distorted and pale with the dew on their brow and the rust on their mail. 
And their tents were all silent, their banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. And the Assyrian widows are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, has melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. It was a mighty triumph by the one true God. But what makes this a Christmas story, you might ask? Well, it's the name that Isaiah attaches to the angel of the Lord, who does the defending and the fighting and the killing. The Hebrew term, the angel of the Lord, it simply means messenger, whether human or divine. But we know that this messenger was more than human, even more than than an angel. For in our text this morning that we're going to read, Isaiah names this messenger, this angel of the Lord, he calls him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The same name given to Jesus, the newborn Savior. Let's read our text, and as we do, I'll I'll provide some running commentary that will help you follow the action. For in chapter 8, Isaiah, he's acting like a war correspondent, like a reporter embedded with the troops as the conflict unfolds. Let's begin in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 8. We're told, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty. The king of Assyria, in all his glory, he will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. Now this strong river is the Euphrates, and its capital is Nineveh. Nineveh was the home of the mighty Assyrian empire with its ambitious kings, with its fast and furious troops. And here he pictures the Assyrian coming out of his land like a river overflowing its banks. The Assyrian army marched across the fertile crescent like a tidal wave. Their troops poured into the land of Israel. It was a devastating tsunami. Verse 8 tells us, He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. The invader overflowed as far south as Judah. They camped right outside the gates of Jerusalem. And he will reach up to the neck. The Assyrian army will put a chokehold on Jerusalem. The enemy will try to strangle God's people. They'll be overwhelmed like a huge vulture stretching out its wings, hovering over its prey. The Assyrians will swarm the Holy Land. And notice to whom the Assyrian threat is directed. He says, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Emmanuel? Isn't that the Christmas baby? Isn't that the reason for the season? How is Mary's infant connected to an ancient battle? It's a provocative thought, but notice first here, though he wasn't yet born Jesus was already a property owner. Did you notice that? Isaiah refers to the land as your land, O Emmanuel. And of course, this is a truth with modern implications. The land that's currently being contested there in the Middle East that includes what we call Israel and the West Bank and the Golan Heights and Gaza. Notice it doesn't belong to the Israelis, nor does it belong to the Arabs. The name on God's deed is Emmanuel. It's his land. And Jesus will prove it when he returns. 
It's interesting. Though he won't be born for another 700 years, Isaiah warns the Assyrians that the owner of this piece of land that they're invading might not be happy with their intrusion. And they don't want to anger Emmanuel. Isaiah goes on. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Isaiah shouts to the nations of the earth to look at what's happened. Because of their rebellion, Israel was shattered and broken. Even though Judah and Jerusalem were armed and had girded themselves, they too were brought under siege. And if God is not afraid to judge his own people, why would he hesitate in judging the other nations of the earth? And then verse 10 is directed to the invading Assyrians. He says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. And why? For God is with us. And what does this phrase, God is with us, mean in Hebrew? It's Emmanuel. It's the name given to Jesus at his birth. It was Jesus who made sure the council and the battle plans of the Assyrians had come to nothing. That the orders barked out by Assyrian generals would not stand. It was the pre-incarnate, the messenger, the angel, the yet-to-be-born Jesus, the Emmanuel who delivered Jerusalem. Now remember the Christmas text. We read it so often. We read it every year. The gospel writer Matthew, he quotes the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 recites Isaiah 7 verse 14. After the angel had appeared to Joseph, Matthew explains, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew is alerting his Gentile readers to the significance of this child. He translates his Hebrew name, Emmanuel, God with us. This baby was God in the flesh. This baby conceived in Mary's womb was God in flesh and blood. In Jesus, God came to earth. God, Jesus was the God-man. But Matthew was communicating far more than that. For his Jewish readers, those who were familiar with the nation's history, the name Emmanuel meant much more. In the Jewish mind, it harkened back to King Hezekiah and to the prophet Isaiah and to the Assyrian invasion of Judah. Emmanuel had been God's answer to a national calamity of life and death importance. Emmanuel had been a Hebrew hero. And so, imagine the carpenter Joseph when he heard the angels say that name, Emmanuel. What sparks ignited in his mind? Joseph was a good Jew. He was familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. He knew the prophecies in Isaiah. What went through his mind when he learned that Mary's baby was the ancient warrior? One thing's for sure, it made God's humility that Emmanuel became an infant all the more amazing. The baby Joseph held in his arms had once had a sword in his hand. 
and had slaughtered a city-sized army of evil men. See, here's the part of the Christmas story that seldom gets told. Mary's baby was not a newcomer. He had been here before. The babe had already been to battle. You see, to really appreciate the Christmas story, we have to leave Bethlehem. And we have to travel, oh, three miles or so north to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was God's city. The Jews, God's people. Hezekiah, God's king. Isaiah, God's prophet. And the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, was God's enemy. At Christmas time, warm fires and blinking lights are common sights. But from the walls of Jerusalem, the only flickering lights that the Jews could see were the campfires of an army of assassins readying for battle. There were no reindeer-drawn sleighs, only war chariots getting ready to fight. Sennacherib was the general of a bloodthirsty army. The mighty Assyrian juggernaut had moved into place at lightning speed. Nation after nation had toppled. The major cities north of Jerusalem, Hamath and Arpad and Damascus and Samaria, had all fallen like dominoes. Now the Assyrians had set their sights on Jerusalem. And realize, the ruthless Assyrians, these were people who turned cruelty and intimidation into an art form. Whenever they conquered a city, they would make examples out of their defeated foes. They often skinned their prisoners alive like we would do to a fish once we caught it. They'd cut off their hands, their feet, their ears, their noses. They would pluck out their eyes and rip out their tongues. These Assyrian butchers lopped off heads and piled up mounds of skulls outside the city gates just to terrorize the neighbors. They were sending the message, you could be next. Supposedly, Hitler's torturers derived inspiration from ancient Assyria. Rape, pillage, brutality were their only ambitions. With Assyria on the warpath, this was not a time of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. One of Assyria's chief wartime tools was propaganda. Sennacherib had such a fierce reputation, he was often able to bully and frighten cities into surrender. And this was his strategy with Jerusalem. He sent his spokesmen to scare the Jews and their king into capitulation. In 2 Kings chapter 18, he reasoned with them. He said, Has any of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem? Sennacherib reasons, all of Assyrians' defeated foes have prayed to their gods for deliverance, and yet none came to their rescue. Why do you Jews think you're any different? How dare the citizens of Jerusalem assume that they're more righteous than their neighbors? Sennacherib's spokesman was being politically correct. He was giving all nations and all religions equal treatment. I suppose he believed in the fairness doctrine. Everybody gets equal time. Sennacherib's propagandist echoed today's mantra. Don't dare exalt one belief or one God above another. Heaven forbid that we ever imply that one man's religion is superior to someone else's religion. Or that another religion might be wrong. Let's not offend anyone. 
And man, this is what bothers me about Christmas. People are so concerned with offending other people. So concerned they're reluctant to even say Merry Christmas. It's winter break or happy holidays rather than Merry Christmas. A friend of mine uh, recently told me that a waitress saw her Christmas pin. And she walked up to her, got real close and whispered to her and said, Merry Christmas. And then she said she had to whisper. She had to be cautious uttering those two forbidden words lest she lose her job. Can you imagine? Every year it blows my mind the extremes to which people go to skirt around the mention of Christmas. Have you noticed there are always after Thanksgiving sales? Oh, I wonder what comes after Thanksgiving. Can we not say it? How about only 25 shopping days left? Left until when? I mean, the advertisers refused to even finish the sentence. One year, Amazon had a 12 days of holiday sale. Are you kidding me? Macy's, the more the merrier sale. But they left us to wonder, marry what? Old Navy wasn't even close with an extravaganza, humongous, honking, three-day, big weekend sale. To me, that's the ultimate insult. The birth of Christ eclipsed by a honking weekend sale. You see, the equal treatment policy people observe today is the same mistake made by Sennacherib and Assyria. No one ever asks, what if all religions aren't equal? You see, Sennacherib, he was knocking off nations one after the other. He was exposing fraudulent gods one after the other. He was proving the futility of their prayers one after the other. But he failed to consider that he could attack a city whose God was true and whose God had the power to save. Sennacherib's oversight is about to cost him. Hezekiah prayed. Isaiah prophesied. That God would come to the defense of his people. In fact, God gave to the house of David an outlandish sign. He said in Isaiah 7, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then in chapter 9, verse 6, he reiterated the promise. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. But this special child, yet to be born, was already on the scene. For as the angel of the Lord, as the pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus came to avenge God's people and fight for His holy city. For in chapter 8, Isaiah speaks of God's warrior by name, Emmanuel. Again, in chapter 8, verse 8, Isaiah predicts, Sennacherib will pass through Judah. He will overflow and fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. The overflowing Assyrian army will finally meet its match in Emmanuel's land. In the next verses, Isaiah taunts the Assyrians. Gird yourselves, but be broken to pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. Emmanuel is our defender. Emmanuel will save the day for God's people. In 2 Kings 19, the passage we read earlier. It describes a night that you've probably never associated with Christmas Eve. God sends his mighty warrior, no doubt Isaiah's Emmanuel, 
into the camp of Assyria with sword drawn. And when the day finally breaks, 185,000 corpses lay on the battlefield. Emmanuel has saved his people. Despite Sennacherib's propaganda, the God of the Jews, the God in Jerusalem, Emmanuel was willing and able to defend his people and overpower the Assyrian. You know, we learn from Sennacherib that if you just assume, that if you don't pay attention to the moves you make and to the decisions that you take, you can get yourself into real trouble. This Sennacherib, he was just cruising through life, taking out cities and kings and false gods. He never once dreamed that he would run into the one true God. Fake gods were no match for Sennacherib. But everything changed in Emmanuel's land. Emmanuel was one tough hombre. Offend Emmanuel and he'll cut you down to size. I hope when you map out your equation... You factor in Emmanuel, because you too will meet him one day. Here's a part of the Christmas story you really need to know. Mary's baby was Emmanuel, the warrior of Isaiah's day that proved the Hebrew God true and dispensed with the evil Assyrians. You see, the babe Mary laid in the manger hay had already made hay in battle. Seven centuries earlier, the babe of Bethlehem had come brandishing a sword with, his, with fire in his eyes, with justice in his heart. Jesus had flashed his steel, and by the time he returned it to its scabbard, it dripped with rebel blood. You see, the first blood Jesus spilt was not his own. Before Mary's baby cried, he had already yelled a battle cry. You see, folks today, they can be like Sennacherib. They can just cruise through life, treating all religions as equal. Oh, don't all paths lead to God? Don't all religions basically worship the same God? Oh, as long as you're sincere in your faith, aren't you just fine? Muslims, they pray to Allah. Hindus pray to Vishnu. Buddhists, they look to Buddha. Mormons think they've become their own gods. Christians trust in Jesus. Hey, what's the big deal? Nobody has a monopoly on God. Hey, but here is the really big deal. One of those religions might actually be true and right. And in your attempt not to offend anybody, you might commit the greatest sin of all and offend the one true God before whom one day every knee will bow. That's what you should be concerned about. This is the mistake that Sennacherib made. He thumbed his nose at the true God in heaven. And God sent Emmanuel to cut down a proud man. Reject or ignore Jesus, and you can get yourself into big league trouble. It's interesting to me that just before Jesus was born, God identified him to Joseph as Emmanuel. And Matthew recorded that strategic detail in the scriptures. It's a notation that just as easily could have been excluded. But it was important enough to God to have it documented. When Joseph held that baby, he knew. He knew who he was really holding. Certainly without that detail, Joseph would have marveled 
that he was holding God in his arms. He would have marveled at God's humility, that the Almighty had become a man, that he had shown compassion on us. But because it was Emmanuel, Joseph knew that the baby he was holding was not just humble, but was holy. Twelve years later, when Jesus, I'm sorry, when Joseph found Jesus teaching the scholars in the temple, I'm sure he thought and he remembered that this was Emmanuel. Not only had he taught the Jews in the temple, he had taught the Assyrians a lesson or two as well. Still later, when Jesus took the whip and ran the greedy money changers out of the temple, I'm certain someone saw a little of Emmanuel rise up within him. When the Romans crucified Jesus, it perplexed the disciples, knowing that he didn't have to take a beating. Emmanuel could have just as easily dished one out. Yet he bore the pain as if he were sacrificing for someone else. And when Jesus rose from the dead, suddenly everyone realized that Emmanuel had been to war. But this time with a different Sennacherib, Jesus had conquered death. See, here's the deal with Jesus. He is a baby in the manger. He is a child in the temple. He is a teacher from Galilee. He is a servant. He hangs on a cross. But you need to look in his rearview mirror where he is also Emmanuel. Jesus desperately desires to save us. He's been dying to prove it. But if we rebel against him, he's not afraid to pull the switch and bring down God's judgment. He has done it before. And he will do it again. And this is the message of Christmas that everyone needs to realize. Jesus is not someone to ignore or marginalize or trivialize as just a baby in the manger. He is not one to dismiss as irrelevant or obsolete. Don't ever make the mistake that he is like any other God. Jesus was a teacher, a healer, a servant, a miracle worker, even our sacrifice. But Jesus is more than all the above. He is Emmanuel. He is Lord and He is King. He enforces righteousness and He punishes evil. Jesus is patient now. But in the end, He takes guff off no one. He is demand. Everybody, great and small, high and low, every human being who has ever lived will one day give an account of their lives before Jesus Christ. Oh, the old man Simeon in the temple, he, he knew the significance of this baby. When he saw the baby Jesus, he said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In fact, this child will decide the eternal destiny of every human who has ever lived. You see, I don't want Christmas to lull any of us to sleep. In one sense, Christmas is a quaint story about a birth and a baby and a manger and a star and some shepherds. But it's also a war story. It's about a rough and ready warrior who invades hostile territory to retrieve what belongs to him, what was stolen from him by greedy, selfish, sinful people. The Christmas story that starts so innocently ends violently. And I'm not talking about the crucifixion. No, Jesus throws the last punch in this fight. He allowed the Romans to beat him up and nail him to a cross in order to save us. But he never takes a beating again. The next time Jesus will dish it out, 
His punching bag days are over. Emmanuel will do battle one final time. Flash ahead to Revelation 19. A day will come when heaven opens and we'll see Jesus. He's the good guy. He's riding on a white horse. This is an event still future. It's been a long time since Jesus walked the earth and bled and died to earn our forgiveness. Since that time, he's been doing all he can through his spirit to convince people to repent and turn to him. But here's the truth. Most people don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want to follow anybody but themselves. They're proud and stubborn and selfish, and they want to try to control their own lives. And it is their sinful stubbornness that's going to send them to hell. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns to earth, and the nations rally against him. People don't want Jesus to rule over them. Thus, they choose to fight against him. And Revelation tells us that he doesn't back down. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. With fire in his eyes and with crowns on his head and with his clothes splattered with the blood of his enemies and with a sharp sword protruding out of his mouth, once more Emmanuel will go into battle flashing a deadly sword. Jesus didn't start this fight. It was man who rebelled against God. God didn't and hasn't stopped loving mankind. Man started this brawl, but Jesus will end it. See, Jesus doesn't care about the fairness doctrine or being politically correct. Offending is not his worry. Revelation tells us that Jesus ends his, the battle by crushing his opposition. The baby in the manger returns to earth to destroy the folks who dare to resist him. And then he throws the rebels into hell along with the devil. And I can hear the objections now. I can't believe you're saying that a loving God, the Christmas child, baby Jesus no less, would send anyone to hell. I mean, some people could never imagine the baby Jesus doing such a thing. Don't be naive. The baby Jesus is Emmanuel. He has judged before, and he will judge again. Let me say, a loving God has no other choice but to send certain people to hell, if he's truly loving. In reality, God doesn't send anyone to hell. When you think about it, folks choose to go there. Hell was never intended for human beings. Jesus said that God created hell for Satan and his demons. Folks reject Jesus and go to hell. They make a decision. That's why they go there. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus will forgive anyone from anywhere who's done anything if they bow themselves before Jesus. Then he'll forgive them and they'll live forever with him. But they have to bow if they think they're smarter than God and that Jesus is too narrow. If they think that, they're, that they can live life better their own way. Well, then guess what? God will send them to a place where that's accepted and desired behavior. The place is called hell. You see, if you hate Jesus and you don't want to follow him, 
How is it then loving for God to make you go to heaven when you'll spend every day, all day, obeying and loving and serving Jesus? That would be cruel and unusual punishment for you. Hey, if you choose to distance yourself from Jesus, well, then God will give you exactly what you choose. You'll spend forever as far from him as possible. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus was on earth, he did nothing but love people and forgive people and serve people and heal people and give to people. Yet evil men killed him. When Jesus returns to earth, he'll come to redeem and restore. He'll establish righteousness and peace. He'll come again with good intentions. And yet once more, evil people will rally against him and try to kill him. Revelation 20 fast forwards to the distant future. By now, Jesus has reigned over the earth for a thousand years. The earth is a utopia. It's a paradise. And yet the devil is let out of hell for a short season. And guess what men do? They rally to Satan and they rebel against God. And again, they try to kill Jesus. I'm just saying some people are incorrigible. And what does God do with people who never want to change? Who don't care to love Jesus? I mean, do you want unrepentant pedophiles and serial killers and thieves and rapists to be in heaven with you forever? That wouldn't be heaven. That would be hell. A loving God has to stop sinful people once and for all, or He wouldn't be very loving to the rest of us. Hell is sin's only logical conclusion. If you still have a problem with hell, I'm going to ask you to be honest. If you were in Jerusalem, and Hezekiah was your king, and the vile and vicious Assyrians were outside the walls, preparing to invade your city, and burn your house, and ravage your things, and torture you, and then rape your wife, and then take your kids and sell them into slavery, would you believe in a hell for them? I think you would. You see, the word Emmanuel means God with us. That's God's desire. But hell is the choice that people make when they choose to be without God. Now, I know it's still Christmas season, and you want to think about peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But don't you want to know the whole story? Jesus is no longer the baby in the manger. He's all grown up now. Baby Jesus is all grown up. He climbed out of that manger and onto a white horse, and he doesn't mess around anymore. In Matthew 21, verse 44, Jesus compared himself to a rock. He said, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. I think about this when my kids and I wrestle in the living room floor. Of course, it's not my kids anymore. It's my grandkids. You know, if one of those grandkids fell on me, no problem. But if I fall on one of my grandkids, they end up crying. A 200-pound G-daddy can hurt. And likewise... Come broken to Jesus, fall on Him, and you'll be healed. But come stubborn, and He has to fall on you, you'll be broken. In the last chapter of your Bible, Jesus declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. 
This means that our Lord Jesus is the last and final word of God to man. Everyone who comes after Jesus is a deceiver. Everyone who contradicts Jesus is false. That includes Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Oprah Channel, you name it. Jesus is as exclusive as you can get. He doesn't say, I am one way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I know that's not a politically correct statement, and this is the 21st century, and we live in a pluralistic culture, and we should never, ever offend someone. But quite frankly, the person I'm more concerned about offending is God, and He has called me to tell you the truth. Like Sennacherib, I have discovered that not all religions and gods are equal. Look in the Bethlehem manger, and you'll find Emmanuel. Remember at Christmas, when that baby first cried, it may have been a battle cry. Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts this morning and 